0: Let's chat health with Anne Budenberg, empowering patients to be involved in their health care. So I'm joined today by Maggie Ellis, who is Senior Lecturer at the School of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of St Andrews. So this is the fourth episode and we're going to chat about some important aspects of dementia, including the impact of music and the use of nonverbal communication, which is one of Maggie's main areas of research. So just a bit of background about how I came to um, meet the St Andrews team. First came across uh, the the team and the work they're doing around dementia back in June 2018. So Maggie was a co-organiser with Gail Docherty, who we Um, spoke to on one of the last podcasts and they were um, organizing a week-long festival events to celebrate uh, Scottish Dementia Awareness Week. This was going on in St Andrews, the various events took place and my father had been diagnosed earlier that year with mild dementia so I thought well let's go to the music event which was being hosted by the jazz pianist Richard Michael, Honorary Professor of Jazz at St Andrews University. So dad had a particular love of jazz, particularly Jack Gershwin, and he'd also learned some selected pieces himself. Um, not too many, because I don't think it was so easy to play, And um, but he had two or three pieces that he liked to play. So we arrived at the event, we were sort of the first people to arrive And he asked dad what music he liked. So Richard um, sat down and played Rhapsody in Blue. And, you know, the whole event was truly inspirational. Um, And the impact and effect it had on um, a whole spectrum of uh, dementia patients who who came to that event that afternoon. So we can chat more about that later. But now I just want to pass you over to Maggie um, to introduce her and who's going to talk about the work that she's doing in St Andrews at
1: the moment. Hi Anne, thanks very much for the introduction and background. Uh, as you said, I'm Maggie Ellis and I'm a senior lecturer in the School of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of St Andrews. And all my teaching and research is on dementia. Uh, with a focus of applying research findings to actual care settings um, so i'm very interested in all sorts of different areas uh, of that kind of research my main area uh, of interest is helping people with very advanced dementia who may have very little or no speech uh, left or understanding of speech uh, to communicate and really, what I'm doing with that is helping us to communicate with people with advanced dementia so that's my main area of interest but I, I do cover lots of different subtopics. It's so huge um, mm-hmm. it, it's such
0: a big area isn't it I mean yeah. just sort of going back slightly to you know in, in terms of the, the current state status mm-hmm. in the UK of dementia what, what are some of the kind of facts, um, statistics on incidence of dementia in in the UK?
1: Currently, we're looking at approximately 850,000 people living with dementia in the UK, and that is expected to rise to uh, a million in the next couple of years. So we really are, the numbers really are increasing very quickly.
0: As people live longer the yes. this number is this is this on an exponential curve or um is is it not it, it, you know it's very recent, it's very rapid um
1: increase mm-hmm. it's very rapid uh, because as you say people are living longer and the biggest risk factor for developing dementia is increasing age so the longer you live the more chance you have of being diagnosed with dementia Um, And because we have um, made so many uh, great strides in developing uh, technology and increasing people's health so that they live longer, um, it means that more and more people um, will eventually be diagnosed with dementia.
0: Yeah, okay. So it's it's quite, they're quite alarming numbers, aren't they? So yeah. just just going back to sort of the music, which was how I came to be introduced to this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I was, I suppose, um, I knew a bit about dementia, working in healthcare, but I didn't quite realise the impact that music can have on people with dementia. And I suppose mm-hmm. when it's close to you, with your your own family, yeah, you you start to really delve into it and take more of it so what is it that really makes this so helpful for people with dementia
1: okay that's it's a good question because it it has so many different facets and we can't really point to one thing um, and say this is what makes music really special uh for people with dementia I started off working with people with dementia when I, about 20 years ago now, in fact, yeah, about 21 years ago now, and I worked for a voluntary service uh, run by Alzheimer's Scotland. And many of the people who used the service uh, found it very difficult to engage in conversation, they would lose track of where they were in conversation, Um, would repeat things they had just said, or it would easily lose track in a conversation that involved uh, more than two or three people. It just became far too confusing. And there were lots of other sort of signs that people were struggling with their memory and with communication. Um, I personally absolutely loved working as a volunteer. It really just, it sowed the the seed and, and that's why I'm still doing it to this day. One of the things I noticed that really helped people with dementia in the daycare service was when we organized a, a musical activity. So maybe that be someone come in with a guitar and, and lead a, a sing song, or if it just started you know, impromptu, sometimes people would just burst into song. Um, and what really fascinated me was the change in mood and also how much people remembered in terms of both the lyrics and the melody. Um, And at that point, I didn't really understand what was going on here. Um, Why were people so good at uh, remembering music and why was it so important for them? Um, And over the years, obviously, I have to develop my knowledge uh, in this area. And as I said, it's very difficult to point to one, specific benefit or that is the special thing about music for people with dementia Um, i can tell you a little bit about uh, some of the areas that are that are improved and some of the areas that are accessed uh, with regards to music for people with dementia Um, first of all music that you may remember from your youth or your, your early adulthood tends to uh, stay with us. And, and I say us, I mean everyone, people with dementia, you and I, we remember um, melodies and songs and lyrics from a certain period in our lives. It's usually between about f- uh, 10 and 25, but a 15 year a period where we remember lots of different things, and that includes memory, and that tends to be where our memories are most um, clear. Um, So we remember music from that period. And if we are tapping into that with a person with dementia, um, we're tapping into memories that are retained. So something that is well rehearsed, something that is retained over time, people with dementia hold on to their longer term memories, longer than they do short term memory. So they're more likely to remember um, events and music from this time. Um, they're also more likely to remember lyrics as well. You can have, I mean, I have met many people who, as I said earlier, have found it very difficult to, to hold a conversation. But remember lyrics to songs, to whole songs, just completely unprompted, uh, the whole thing. So it's incredible in that it's tapping into these retained skills. And I think it's also providing people who have challenges with communication with an alternative way to communicate with the world. So if you're able to tap your feet and move to music or hum the tune or sing along with the lyrics as tapping into something else that connects you with the people around you and provides you with this alternative form of communication that doesn't involve trying to find words to form a conversation and um, so that very long drawn out explanation <laughs> my apologies um tells us a little bit about why music is so special for people with dementia
0: yeah no that's no that's great thank you um I suppose leading on from that you said that people um who are struggling to make conversation can you know can remember whole songs and the lyrics yeah now um does that then does it then provide any kind of stimulus to improve their conversational skills or does it just
1: stop with the music Well, there's lots of evidence out there to suggest that music has um, a power over and above uh, the -the in-the-moment changes uh, that occur. Um, There's lots of evidence to suggest that uh, music can improve people's cognitive function, people's mood, um, ability to interact with other people, and some studies even show that that lasts for weeks and months. Um, But The the results are very, very um, varied um, over studies. It depends a lot on the type of methodology uh, that is used. Are are people using music therapy as opposed to just playing music in a group? Uh, The results are are very mixed, but there are lots of positive indicators there.
0: So it's a stimulating medium to use. So it's...
1: Yes, very much so.
0: Whatever it's doing, it's a positive. Um, I think I know when we've spoken before, you, you mentioned something about um, that music stored in a different area of the brain.
1: Yeah, so music is stored throughout the brain. That um, It isn't stored in one particular area. So music and emotions and memories connected to music are stored throughout the brain. And because there isn't one specific area, it is not one area that is attacked by dementia or Alzheimer's disease. So you're more likely to remember different aspects of music than you would certain memories, if you like.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, I th- as you say, you, you mentioned mood. And I think at that particular event, um seeing you know obviously clearly a spectrum of people with different um, stages of dementia mm. some looking so they were really uh, didn't have dementia at all and then at the other extreme we had others that were just looked as though they, they couldn't really do anything and they yeah. looked very down and by the time Richard Michael had got them using instruments and tapping, mm-hmm. um, doing rhythm, etc., cetera, they'd come to life and they were yeah. doing completely engaged in it. And mm-hmm. So it was
1: quite That was incredible. Revelation. It really was.
0: Yeah. We should have really had him here as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, Okay. So in terms of impact of behavior, Um, so quality of life all that kind of thing that's Mm. all better Mm
1: -hmm. because of it Mm. yes um there are obviously um some aspects of using music with people with dementia that can generate negative memories so it may be that um Take for example someone in daycare who hears a song and it reminds them uh, of their parents, and then they remember that their parents are no longer here and they get upset. And some people, some people um, suggest that we shouldn't be using music that we know will elicit a negative uh, interact, uh, a negative reaction, or that we suspect might elicit a negative reaction. However you and I and and everyone else in the world will hear music on a daily basis and we can't ever really know when something's going to come on the radio that's going to bring up a, a sad memory for us and we get upset. The whole point of it is that even if it does elicit a negative memory, people with dementia just have as much right as anyone else to express their emotions, be that positive or negative. And Personally, I don't feel we should be walking on eggshells and trying to find only positive things at all times, um, because people need to express themselves, whether that be positive or negative.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. That's mm-hmm. there. They've got to live in the normal world, I suppose. Mm-hmm. That's what you're trying to do, live in the mm-hmm. normal world and deal with everything that that throws at it at us really yeah okay so i guess that answers one of my kind of questions i was going to ask about any particular music better than another so you you know
1: yeah well i think we're we're looking at that particular period in a person's life maybe that 15 20 years that i mentioned um that's where people will be most likely to remember uh, tunes and lyrics from from that specific period. So it's going to be dependent on the person's age. And currently what' we're, what we're still seeing in, in care homes um, I've been told you know anecdotally that um, we're still playing sort of wartime songs to people with dementia in care homes. and you know they're, they're far too young. Uh, the majority of the people who are in care homes now are far too young to um, have been involved with that music at the time. They, they probably know it because they'll have heard it, um, but it may not be that meaningful to them. So we're now, you know, I always say to my students, if, um, if I have a diagnosis of dementia in my later life, you know the music that I hope that they would play um, in the care homes would be, you know, eighties music, and you know that that kind of blows people away sometimes because you, you think of people with dementia as oh yes it will be it will be the wartime music that'll be the kind of thing that would that would uh, encourage them to sing and and to remember the music, but it changes all the time with the age uh, of the group that you're working with, and, and we can tend to forget that at times.
0: Actually, absolutely, because I was speaking to someone about this sort of last week, and he was saying exactly the same. He said that mm. group of, if it's 80 year olds, they're not wanting to listen to Vera Lynn. They're, mm. you know, they're of the rock and roll, um, the Beatles generation. Yeah. Um, so exactly that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yes, you just kind of put those put people into this big group of sort of old people but mm-hmm. it's quite. You have to be quite specific, as you say, to that that group to make it yeah. meaningful. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it isn't
1: easy to do. Um, but I, I, I really believe we're kind of at a standstill. We're a bit stuck um, when it comes to providing activities and an appropriate care for people. You know, if we're still playing, as an example, if we're still playing, you know wartime music for people who are in their, their 70s, as you say, we would probably come from we're either, either into the Beatles or the Stones. Um, we're, we're kind of missing a trick here.
0: Absolutely. What, what about peoples who've previously played a musical instrument? Mm-hmm. Do they retain that ability to um, still play the piano um, mm. Because that, that's obviously related to memory as well, but obviously yeah. it's a physical activity as well. Yeah,
1: so it's um, playing a musical instrument is related to procedural memory, so the memory of, of how to do something. Um, and people who have played instruments um, do retain um some retain ability to play, some don't, and some won't approach the instrument for fear that they won't be able to do it anymore. So there are lots of different reasons why people would or would not attempt to play the instrument that they once played. Um, As an example um, of just how wonderful um, being able to play an instrument can be and how much it can give to a person with dementia, um, I'll give you another example from when I was uh, researching in a, in a care home in Dundee, and I was in the day room, and I was talking to people, and trying to, you know, assess people's interest in taking part in the in the research um, because I had a, a project running at the time. I was working on a project, and. Uh, I was chatting to this lady who found it very, very difficult to engage in conversation. Um, She would maybe nod or shake her head or or laugh, but she didn't say very much at all. And it was almost as though she was was frightened to say anything in, in case she got it wrong. That was the impression I got. And she beckoned to me to walk with her. So I walked with her along the corridor uh, a couple of times and I noticed there was a piano and a piano stool in the corridor. Um, so she sat down at the, at the piano and tapped the stool for me to sit next to her. And I did, and she then proceeded to give me a piano lesson. Um, now it was very, very basic. I am I am no pianist. Um, But it was, you know, she would play a couple of notes and then look at me and then I would play the same notes to, to the best of my ability. And she was then afforded this opportunity to become an expert. She's the expert in this. She can show me how to do this. And it was just wonderful. It was wonderful for so many different reasons. I think because it gave her the chance to take the lead It gave her the chance to um, show her retained skills, and it gave her an alternative to trying to find words to form a conversation. Um, And I've seen music do this time and time again with people. There is of course the opposite side where people may have played an instrument and may avoid it at all costs. Um, because they may live in fear that they're not going to be uh, as proficient as they once were, or they're not going to remember how to do it. Um, but I think it depends very much on the person, um, and you know the person's personality. You know, doesn't doesn't go away just because they have dementia. So it's it's very individual. But that is one that is one. Um, example that has stayed with me um for a long long time um, it was just amazing to see and to be part of
0: yeah absolutely and presume you know you don't know what that was stimulating for her you know maybe she was used to playing family duets or mm-hmm. um playing with her grandchildren you, you don't really know what it was no. but whatever mm-hmm. it was as you say she's all of a sudden in a new world a different world for her and yeah um it's interesting what you say about the personality doesn't go away with Mm -hmm. dementia Mm -hmm. so presumably confidence can change but your basic underlying personality is is the same Mm. or
1: is well there's evidence for both So um, there's evidence to suggest that people's uh, personality can remain constant throughout dementia. And there is also uh, arguments against that, that personality does change. And it really does depend on the type of dementia uh, that the person has. I mean, uh, personality changes um, can occur Quite strikingly, with uh, dementia, with frontotemporal dementia, for example, um, people kind of appear to be very different than they than they were than they were before. Um, but we can we can help people to maintain their personality and and who they are. It then becomes our job to help to to facilitate that when the person is is struggling to to put themselves across. So. there are there's evidence for and against um i'm afraid and (laughs) that's so often the way um you know some people believe that personality stays exactly the same other people believe that it changes over time and that that's dependent over the type of dementia and also how you are treated by others
0: right absolutely so i guess that and, and from experience of seeing that so mm. um you know staff in care homes staff in hospital knowing more yeah. about that person can mm-hmm. engage more if they don't know anything about them it's very difficult for them to strike up conversations and
1: build a build a rapport with them i mean it's very true yeah that, that's very true however you know i'm I'm of the opinion that if, if you know if you meet someone for the first time, you don't know their background, but y- you can have a conversation with that person um, and, and that allows you to get to know that person even just a little bit. Um, and we tend to do that by um, talking about shared memories, uh, not shared memories, sorry, of course you've just met the person, um, commonalities. You know, so I like, uh, I like music, so do you, or I like reading, and so do you, and I like these types of books. So it's not impossible to, to form a relationship with someone um, with dementia when you first meet them. You, you just do it by the same process. Um, you know, they may remember different things, but the, the process is still the same. You, you, you talk about things that you have in common and it really isn't, it needn't be something that people fear or that people will will think will just be too difficult. I think that's one of the biggest problems is that we fear um, interacting with people with dementia because we don't know what to expect. I was exactly the same. You know, Mm -hmm. when I went to um, the voluntary um, group, very first time, I was was only in my twenties at the time. And to my knowledge, I had never met a person with dementia before. I was really quite, I was really quite scared to go into the, into the day room because I just didn't know what to expect. To hear all these stories about, oh, you know, people can become aggressive and violent, and you know, just they're just people like everyone else. And how they react depends on how we react to them more often than not. So there's no big mystery there.
0: Yeah. So that. I mean, maybe just leads on to um, in terms of communication. So your Mm. sort of main area of research, you you said is around nonverbal communication.
1: Yeah. Um, So I started this work a long time ago now. I think it's about maybe 16 years ago. Um, I was invited to a, a conference on uh, an approach to non-verbal communication uh, with people with profound and multiple learning disabilities and the approach is called intensive interaction and it was a wonderful conference it was incredible to see this technique being used with people with learning disabilities people who are deaf-blind, people who have had strokes Um, anyone really who is really struggling to communicate or understand the communication uh, of others Um, so lots of the video clips that we saw were of people who who sat in complete silence and you know just looked into the the middle distance you if you didn't know that there was a that there was an ability to communicate there you might think that there was there was no ability at, at all you know you you would you just wouldn't know uh and this approach intensive interaction is based on using the person's non-verbal language in inverted commas so what you would see in lots of these individuals um would be uh, repetitive actions so maybe something like tapping on a table or maybe rubbing an item of your clothing or tugging on your hair. Um, It's about viewing these actions as meaningful and purposeful rather than seeing them as something that is meaningless and random or it's just something that she does because she has, um, you know, she she has autistic spectrum disorder or, or whatever the condition may be. It's about seeing those actions as meaningful and using them as a basis to communicate with that individual. So again, like the lady who gave me a piano lesson, she was in control, she was in the lead there. So if we look at these actions in person with advanced dementia as something that is is communicative in nature and using those actions, that person is leading the communication you or or I as the communication partner, then lets the person take the lead and follows on from what that person does. So it involves reflecting the actions of the person, not directly imitating necessarily, but reflecting it in some way. And it's done by a a lot of trial and error. Um, So while I was at this conference, my PhD supervisor and I had, Uh, immediately thought that this would be a a wonderful thing to try with people with very advanced dementia, Uh, because doing the work in in care homes as as a researcher, I tended to work with people who were a bit earlier on uh, in the progression of their dementia. So people who could still talk, who could still engage in some sort of a a conversation, who are maybe still mobile. And Lots of the people I saw whilst I was in these homes were people who were just sitting completely silent in a chair in their room or maybe in the day room and no one talking to them and as far as I was aware they weren't able to talk either Um, and just no one doing anything with them because they didn't know it was possible to do anything with them, Um, any activities I mean. Um, so we went through a long uh, uh, ethics process. You have to go through um, NHS ethics to work with people who can't give informed consent. So we, we had a, a long ethics process to go through before we could work with anyone with advanced dementia. And when we eventually did, I met a very special lady who will always be dear to me, um, Edie was the very first person I tried this technique out with, and she, she was incredible. I mean, she was just a real trailblazer, you know. Um, she was the very first person I had tried this with, and she came to life, completely came to life um, when we engaged using the principles of intensive interaction. So that's a long time ago now, and we've since then published uh, several uh, journal articles, uh, a couple of books on the approach. We provide training on it now, uh, and along the way, sort of, kind of, at the beginning of the research, we we considered that it maybe wasn't purely intensive interaction that we were engaging in, because a couple of the The aims of intensive interaction are to engage the person with learning disabilities in a curriculum in some way. So there's a teaching element. And also there's an idea that the person will develop a relationship with their communication partner over time and that they will remember this person from session to session. And we considered that our approach to this would be purely connection-based allow the person with advanced dementia to form a connection with another human being and so we're not expecting the person to learn anything we're not expecting them to remember me or or whomever else from session to session and that we would adapt to whatever the person brought each time to the session so myself or a trainee would not uh, reintroduce an action that was present in uh, a previous interaction um, because it, inverted commas, worked the last time. Um, we just adapt to whatever the person is doing in the moment. And therefore, we named our variant uh, of intensive interaction adaptive interaction for dementia. Uh, and we've done lots of work over the years on this now. And it's it's really growing in people are people are becoming much more interested and much more accepting of it now you know we did have um there, there were some um reactions to it some negative reactions to it when we first started this work um but people seem to be uh coming around to it a lot more now and we are we are doing far more presentations uh training we're writing more on the topic um so i think I think we're we're getting there with this approach.
0: So well, that's really interesting. You talk about um, your trailblazing um, Edie. Was that you, mm-hmm. her name? Yeah, yeah. Um, so what you know, what was her sort of starting point?
1: Oh, okay. So her starting point was that she had been living in this care home for i think about 5 years at the time and when she first went to live there she was able to uh walk about herself you know she was mobile and she was able to use uh some words so she she could form sentences although they were difficult to understand at times but but over the years she she um she changed and she became uh immobile so she was she was either in a chair or in bed all day, and she lost the ability to speak, and as far as we could tell, understand the speech of others. Um, So her baseline really was um, a matter of just being completely silent, apart from a signature sound that she had. Uh, which I won't do for you now because it will it will blast your (laughs) eardrums but she made this really loud sound um when she was around people so when she was in the day room or if someone came into her room to to help her to eat or to help her to shower whatever she made this really loud sound and I was told that um the residents found the other residents found it upsetting and and were very unsettled by it and because of this she was really she, she really was in her room most of the time alone and this is this was her baseline so the the most interaction that she received is when her Uh, daughter came in to visit her and her daughter was just wonderful and yeah I'm still in touch with her uh, all these years later and she's spoken about her mum at uh, talks we've given Um, she she was just so forward thinking Um, so she did interact with her mum she did very up-close work you know lots of touch uh, lots of face-to-face contact but she felt comfortable with that because you know that's her mother um, so that was the most interaction that she received, but otherwise, she was alone for most of the time because of this sound that she made. Um, and it can it can be the case that when people engage in actions like this, maybe they have the signature sound or they have a movement that they make that maybe is is startling to some people. Um, it may be a, their attempt and. know this approach would state that definitely this is their attempt to communicate um but if we don't use that action to communicate with them then it becomes a problem to us or inverted commas a a behavior that challenges and that's very much an inverted commas because i can't stand that phrase (laughs) so that was our baseline really it sounds i mean
0: yeah, there, I mean, it sort of brings out all sorts of things, as you say. So she was effectively in solitary confinement. She, yeah, presumably completely. We were speaking about deconditioning with people mm-hmm. being in bed all the time. So deconditioned, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. in terms of quality of life, very, very poor. Um, yeah. So and you can see how that's sort of frightening for other people in the care home and you can see how that whole situation happens so yeah. you came along and turned this noise that she was making into kind of something useful you turned it mm-hmm. into a language
1: yeah um it was her language it was part of her communication repertoire um there were there were lots of other elements of that repertoire that that surfaced once um once we we made a a breakthrough with her. Um, But it was was absolutely, it was so joyful, (laughs) this initial interaction, because it's almost as, she almost seemed relieved that someone was um, making an attempt to engage with her in a way that she understood. Um, There was lots of smiling, lots of laughter, uh, lots of, she really loved me to rub my head against hers um and she initiated that and that used that really tickled her that that really made her laugh um she was just really really affectionate and and wasn't really given the chance to express that apart from with her daughter um so it really it, it opened it opened my eyes definitely to to what might be possible um, for people with advanced dementia if we were to use their own communication repertoire Um, and really one of the main barriers to using this approach um, in care is you know we are the elephant in the room the elephants in the room (laughs) you know it's our opinions of whether or not we should be engaging in this is this appropriate is this age appropriate is this respectful um you know it's all about us we can become embarrassed when trying this um worrying about what other people might think of us um and that's all perfectly understandable and you know that is changing over the years people are becoming more and more open to it now um and it really is about the the biggest barrier is us kind of getting over our own um concerns about this approach and our own embarrassment really
0: yeah our own prejudice and yeah i suppose it throws up you know for me it kind of i suppose poses the question it sounds you know yeah what, what a fantastic um thing to do for someone mm-hmm. and also their family and obviously presumably you can engage the family but in terms of time you know what is the time frame and um you know the man hours to go into this so it becomes Mm -hmm. um you know who's going to do this and Mm -hmm. you know how long does it all take
1: yeah And, and that is it's always a question that we're asked you know we don't, we don't have time to do this. You know, when can when I possibly find time to do this? And I don't, we, we're all very aware of how busy care, caregivers are. It's an exceptionally busy, um, pressure-filled job. Um, and we try to stress that we are not asking you to do anything else here. We're not trying, this is not an add-on or a nice-to-have. Um, this is a way that you can communicate with the person on a daily basis while you're helping them to eat, while you're helping them to shower, um, while you're doing these activities of daily living with the person. You know, It's not that when you engage in those activities, you're talking to them and then there's an extra five minutes for adaptive interaction. Um, we don't want to give anyone any extra work to do. Um, what we're trying to put across is that this can be integrated into the person's day and, and into your working practice. Um, and that is a message that is, uh, it's a message that we are struggling. Um, and, and I say that, you know, I, I really mean it when I say it is a struggle to encourage people to think that we're not asking them to do anything extra. Um, that this could be integrated
0: okay well that's you know that's obviously it's reassuring because that's always the question isn't it i -hmm. suppose it's the getting over the prejudice and Mm -hmm. as you say all the feelings that they feel about being embarrassed of but and i know you obviously then they would have to have training in it you know Mm -hmm. how much sort of training would they require
1: um the training we provide training that can either be uh, a day, so that be an introduction to it, um, and we also provide training that can happen over uh, a week, uh, where we see people for three days and then we have a, a six-month follow-up. Um, so, in order to be trained, you could learn the basics in a day, um, and you could try it, but the the three day training program involves uh, sort of hands on help with uh, any questions that people might have in the moment um, and that I think is very useful because people need to practice um, and need to start feeling comfortable with this it's I think it's very diff- it would be very difficult I think to have the basic training in a day and go out and now it's part of your practice I do I do think you need I do think you, need a little bit more time for it to percolate and for you to get used to the idea and get used to trying it with people and and just seeing what happens because it's it can be it's such an unknown you know you could try something with someone and you see absolutely or you think you see absolutely no response but try something else that you think maybe not be that significant of an action to a person and then you just see their eyes fly open and you know they reach out for you it's you have to develop your confidence in, in trying things out and i think that is that takes time
0: i suppose the other thing it raises is you know it's the whole culture of that particular um establishment institution care home wherever it is mm-hmm. um as well but because one person could go it alone but it's whole ethos really of of the place isn't it
1: yeah and then you know it's the ethos of the the care home then spreading out to maybe the care home uh, company maybe they have a number of care homes and that from there it spreads out to our attitudes towards people with advanced dementia as a whole as a country uh, you know in the world do we realize that um the, the value of these individuals? Do we understand their potential? Um, do we look at people with advanced dementia as as being full of potential and, and untapped uh, skills? Or do we look at these individuals as people who are at the end of their lives and you know it's best just to leave them leave them be? Um, if we had if we had an attitude uh, as a society, where we saw people as uh, with advanced dementia as being full of potential, um, I believe this would be used in care homes everywhere. But it, it's very dependent on, on our views.
0: Yes, i i I can see can see why this is a challenge.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so more people, I guess it's just it's education, spreading the word. Um, yeah. And, and I suppose individual families could do it, um, yeah. you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and of, you know, for somebody living at home. Uh, yeah. And I'm just, I want to go on to a slightly different, something slightly different in a minute, but I just wanted to go back to Edie again. Yeah. Just really, we said what her baseline was,
1: mm-hmm. where
0: did, where did she get to? And, um, and sort of roughly what, what was the time scale
1: for that? Where did she get to in terms of our communication together?
0: Yes. So in terms of her baseline, she had a mm-hmm. noise that she communicated with. And then you said yeah. she was a lot, there was a lot of laughter, and you yeah. used to rub your head, heads yeah. together, um, mm-hmm. do all that kind of um, you know, they had that sort yeah. of language between you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in terms of her. Where did she, you know, a, f- a few weeks or months down the line, was she more communicative? Did she, you know, when care staff or family went in, did she have more um, other bits of language that she used in general?
1: No, um, because the care staff wouldn't have used this approach. Um, in fact, this is such a long time ago now. Um when i first started doing this work that i can remember one of the carers walking past the room uh, and then later on saying to me you know what on earth are you doing in there this is just this, this is just weird you <laughs> know why are you doing this uh and and now people are attitudes are changing but she i, I think what improved over time was me what improved o- over time was my understanding of her Communicative repertoire and what she was capable of and how I was capable of reaching her. Um, so we did a we did a really interesting study uh, way back, the, the first time we trained professional caregivers. We trained family members now as well. Um, but when we first started training professional caregivers, we did this, um, we asked them to complete a measure before the training. And the measure was looking at how they rated. Uh, the communication skills of the person with dementia that they would be working with. So everyone was paired with an individual with dementia to work with over time. So they rated the person in terms of their communication skills. And at the end of the training, all the scores increased. So we asked them to do it again. We asked them to rate the person again. And all the communication scores increased. So the carers believed that the person's communication improved throughout the course of the training now that's highly unlikely um, because if anything over time the person with dementia's communication skills would decrease over time because you know um, dementia is uh, progressive but what did change was their attitudes towards what the person was capable of so where they didn't see communication skill before in a certain action now they saw this as ah okay this is her attempt to communicate with me or this is part of her repertoire and and that for us was almost that's where the magic occurs (laughs) with this approach is that it changes us not the person with dementia it changes how we feel and how we approach them and and that's absolutely key
0: right yeah so she liked to communicate in. I think what you're saying is um, she had a noise initially, but she, there yeah. were much more potential within her, which yeah. were the the things that you you mentioned, like the rubbing of heads together and yeah anything else, and that was all untapped potential inside yes. her. Yeah. So it was that, as you say, getting over our beliefs yeah yeah okay no that's no fantastic that's okay um so so moving on just um there's you talk about um this term you've got this in a lot of your work um personhood Mm. and and i think that ties in with what you've been saying about um you know, do we think they're just someone at the end of their life with no potential mm-hmm. or
1: do we think mm-hmm. they do have potential? So. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so personhood, um, it, it can be a bit of a woolly term and it can be, you know, there are several different explanations of, of what personhood is. Uh, what I would use for people with dementia is Personhood is about how the person perceives themselves and how this is being supported by those around them. So, am I supporting the person to believe that he or she is a communicative, uh, a social agent? Am I supporting him or her to believe that? Um, am I supporting him or her to believe that she is a valuable member of society, that she has something to give? Um, And again, as as people lose their abilities to communicate or or whatever is going on for them, we, it's our job then to step up, to help the person to maintain their personhood and their sense of self, Uh, and it then becomes, it then becomes a something that we can contribute to and something that we can help with we can help the person to really feel that they are that they matter and that they're not diminished in terms of their personhood because they have dementia um, and that they they retain their intrinsic humanity or humanness um, it it's uh, it's something that we can help with as as the person goes further into their dementia.
0: So I, I guess, I mean, it sort of, it makes me think it's not, goes beyond dementia, um, I suppose, mm-hmm. because it's, you know, someone with a stroke who's in unable to communicate or mm-hmm. communicate. It's, you know, it's that same thing. Are they, people come out with those phrases, like there's nobody there, they've, that mm-hmm. you know, but there is someone there. It's just, yeah, what you were saying is, how do you support them to be
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, a human being?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's so important that we do so because if we if we don't recognise the person as fully human and as a social agent, even though their communication skills are uh, have changed over time. It has huge implications for the person's care, because if we believe that this person is, you know, is uh, non communicative. uh, Just sits there, doesn't do anything anymore, you know, can't contribute anything, that therefore gives us a license to treat the person in a certain way. Whereas if we were to work hard to help the person to maintain their identity, to maintain their personhood, it makes our job all the more valuable. It makes us feel better about how we do our job. It increases our sense of self-efficacy if we can reach a person and uh, engage in a a meaningful uh, relationship with this person based on their own language.
0: So, how do you think we get those messages out? I mean, I suppose, firstly, to um, people when, when people first get dementia, and get that diagnosis, you mm-hmm. know, there's this huge stigma. And uh, I remember my father, you know, he didn't want to tell anyone. It was mm-hmm. and it was, you know, it's only mild. You know, mm-hmm. um, how do you get those messages out? Just in in that initial stages to the family, so that. You know, you're kind of educating that mass of people who are who are being diagnosed.
1: That's a huge question. Um, and it is one that is people all over the world are trying to uh, address this. An example from uh, the UK is uh, dementia friendly, uh, dementia friendly um Sorry, you might have to edit me here. (laughs) (laughs) Dementia-friendly communities. Uh, And this involves educating people in the community about dementia, what it means, encouraging shops and businesses to maybe change their signage or change their layout so that a person with dementia uh, has an easier time wayfinding. It's about teaching people what dementia might look like in a certain person so if you meet someone on the street who asks for directions and may seem to be a little lost it may not be that um, it it may be that they have dementia and that you could actually help this person so that's one of the initiatives that's happening in this country and um, I've been involved with uh, Dementia Friendly St Andrews uh, and trying to working with the the coordinator for fife uh ruth mccabe who does all the all the training of the businesses and services and you know that is making a difference the work she does is is making a difference um but there's there's still so much to do um you know we'll we'll never be done i don't think
0: it's a lifetime's work i think
1: <laughs> it's yeah don't it, retire it just is. yet <laughs> I've got a few years left. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Um, Okay, so we, you know, we could talk about there's so much to talk about, but there's just one final. I think the personal stories about the people you've, um, you know, interacted with are are so good. So there was one personal story that um, you had wrote in one of your papers about Brian, who was suffering. And um, you spoke about his ability to relearn old technologies
1: yeah, And also
0: mm-hmm. to, which was quite amazing, to learn new ones. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: so I just wonder if you wanted to maybe have a, f- a final um, yeah. a discussion
1: yeah. around that. Sure. Uh, Brian was, when I first met him, uh, I think he was about 63. Uh, he had early onset, he had a diagnosis of early onset dementia. And he, had a, he showed an interest in technology, but he was frightened of it um, because he had previously used it all the time. He previously used a, a desktop computer, you know, all the gadgets in the house. And because he'd had a few accidents at home, so things like he would, he, he tried to reprogram the remote control for the TV and no one could access any of the channels anymore. Um, he put a tin of beans in the microwave, and it exploded. And he was just prevented from doing so many things at home um, because he had because there had been several accidents and, and mishaps. Um, so he had he had lost a lot of his confidence around using technology. Um, so the project that I was working on at the time was was looking at uh, the use of technology and helping people uh, to monitor. Their, uh, they were eating on a daily basis to make sure they were getting uh, the correct nutrition. And I ended up working with Brian on something completely different. So he had initially shown this interest uh, in, in using the technology that I had brought with me to show everyone. Um, and there, from, from there on out, we, we developed this friendship where I would go and uh, visit him a couple of times a month um, and we'd work on some technology um, strategies together. So initially he had seen uh, my iPhone um, and was just fascinated by it. And he, he couldn't believe all the different things that you could do on it because I used to put our appointments in the, in the diary. And he said, oh, let me, let me see that. How do you use that? So I showed him it. The next time I came to his house, he had an iPhone. His wife had bought him an iPhone, and he was. He said it's still in the box. I don't know what to do with it. I'm I'm frightened to open it. And then we we just took very small steps every week in helping him how to learn this new technology. He relearned how to use his PC uh, because that was something that had he had really lost his confidence in, in using his PC. And we wrote step by step instructions for things like sending emails, um, adding dates in the diary, uh, sending attachments uh, to emails. All sorts of different things. I was really guided by what he wanted to learn. Um, And he he very sadly died of of cancer. when he was, I think he was 64. So I think I'd only known him for a year or so before he died. Um, But just before that point, he he had just grown in confidence so much that he joined the Scottish Dementia Working Group. Um, I think he was the chair of that for a while. He was invited to speak at a conference in Japan. I've never been invited to speak at a conference in Japan, (laughs) but Brian was, it was just incredible. And he had uh, got funding for everyone in the Scottish Dementia Working Group to get iPads, Um, you know, he was using Skype. He had just just gotten back so much confidence and realised that he was able to use his own skills and learn new things, which is, you know, people with dementia, we don't really think of of them as being capable of learning new things. But that was... That was an eye-opening experience for me uh, working with Brian, and it was lovely to have him as an author on the paper as well. Um, But you know, that's that's one—it's one person out of you know 50 million in the world who have dementia, and putting that sort of a a methodology um, into practice would be impossible. Because you'd have to have 50 million people going to visit 50 million people twice a month. Um, you know, it would, it, it's not really feasible in the real world. But it was, it was an amazing experience for both of us, and and really helped me to see truly what person-centred working can do uh, for a person with dementia, uh, and for me, he he really increased my my knowledge and my understanding of dementia. As you say, each person-centered
0: care, um, you know, it's as you say, everyone's so individual. Um mm-hmm. I guess there's it kind of throws up so many more questions. Um mm-hmm. and you know how 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 can you roll out, you know, maybe it's never possible, maybe you can roll out a partial program. Mm-hmm. Um but it's what a huge task but I just think it's it's great to end on you know on a high on a positive note about Brian and um, I think all families have got those sort of sort of anecdotal stories about all the strange things that go on with you Mm -hmm. know dementia patients and if you can turn it round as you did with Brian you know absolutely fantastic so as we said we could we could speak for Um, many hours on on this topic but I just wondered if you wanted to sort of draw it to a close any just sort of final points that you wanted to make
1: yeah I think there's one main point that I would like to make and that is that person-centered care um, doesn't necessarily have to be what I did with Brian you know, so it doesn't involve, you know, visiting the person's house every couple of times a month and drawing up this individualized plan. It really is about treating the person as an individual. And, and that is, is as simple as that or as difficult as you want to make it. Um, you know, it is possible uh, to uh, engage in person-centered care and the system that we currently have. Um, I just don't think that the training is there um, and I think that person-centeredness, again, like personhood, um, is, is a, is a woolly term and people, you know, it becomes kind of a, a tick box exercise. Yes, we, we deliver person-centered care, but ask them what they mean by that and, and you might get 10 different answers. Um, so it is possible to treat each person as an individual. You know, we do it in our daily lives all the time to everyone we meet. We would never assume that people would never assume that you and I were exactly the same. Um, you know, it's not as difficult as as it seems. Um, and, you know, Brian was an extreme example of that because I did spend an awful lot of time with him. Um, but it doesn't have to be like that. It can just be little things that you deliver and care every day that show the person that you see them as an individual. And I think that's the point I'd like to end on. Thank you so much. Um, my pleasure
0: for for giving you know sharing your knowledge and expertise and, and the work the valuable work that you do thank you
1: thanks very much and thanks for having me
0: let's chat health with Anne budenberg empowering patients to be involved in their health care